I originally preached on Esther about 10 years ago at Sojourn, way back when we were still at the 930 Arts Center. And two things came out of that, uh, that experience. One was the book just surprised the heck out of me and uh, led me on a journey that, that led to ultimately me writing a book about Esther uh, called Faith Amongst the Faithless. But then the second thing that happened at that uh, particular experience that sticks with me is that during the sermon, in kind of the back right left of the congregation, uh, I'll never forget this, there was literally a couple making out the entire time I was preaching. It's one of the strangest preaching experiences I've ever had. I urge you, um, if you feel an impulse to do that today, just save it. Save it for when you get home, Okay. At which point we encourage it. So um, today we're, we're really looking only at Esther chapters 1 and 2. Uh, and it's a weird place to try and, and find a sermon in the text because uh, you could easily take away the wrong message from the story because the story so far is Esther is uh, hiding her identity as a Jew, sleeping with a pagan king, and is rewarded by becoming the queen. So you could definitely get the wrong message out of the story. Um, and we'll, we'll see as we dig into it if there, if there isn't actually something much more at work here that we can learn from. But before we do that, we have to kind of understand the context of this book. And this will be helpful, I think, for over the next couple of weeks to keep some things in mind that we'll, we'll pick up today. And the, the first is this, this is taking place during the exile. So uh, if you recall, you know, the time of King David, Israel is this, this thriving, flourishing nation. And uh, under David, there's peace. Uh, they make peace. Under Solomon, they build the temple. Uh, again, the nation flourishes. And then in the generations that follow, things start to fall apart. Uh, they start worshiping idols. They start making compromises religiously. They start making compromises with, with their, their foreign enemies. And ultimately, God uh, withdraws his blessing and protection over them, and they are, they are uh, sacked by Babylon. And they become part of, part of the Babylonian Empire. Um, at that time, uh, a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of kind of elites in the culture are taken captive by Babylon and taken away. And the goal of this was assimilation. The idea was we're going to take some of the leaders, we're going to take some of the cultural elite, and we're going to pull them out of 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 Israel. So there's a lack of leadership. And so Babylon's going to move in, and then these guys we're going to immerse them in Babylonian culture and hope that they assimilate and hope ultimately that they become more Babylonian than they, become, uh, than they are Jewish. After a, a while, uh, Persia then sacks Babylon, and then they're all, now they're all part of the Persian Empire. And one of the features of, of the Persian Empire that's really interesting, and one of the things that, that makes this story interesting is that Persia was a little bit of a different empire than, say, the Assyrians or other big empires from the ancient Near East. Because when Persia took you over, they didn't eliminate your gods. Normally, they, you know, an empire comes in, they tear down all the temples, they, they tear down everything, and they say, well, now, now you're Babylonians, you've got to worship the Babylonian gods or the Assyrians or whoever it would be. But when the Persians came in, they would come in and they would say, listen, you can keep your gods. Um, you just have to recognize that you don't have an exclusive claim on the truth. 
You can worship whoever you want to worship, but don't tell anybody else in the empire what to do. Don't, don't discount, discredit, or, you know, strike, uh, strike up wars with other people over their religion. And this is a really interesting tactic because for the most part, this kind of worked, but this was really problematic for the Jews because they're monotheistic and they believe that there is one God in Israel. And so that, that becomes a point of contention. And in fact, uh, during the, the story of Esther, the fact that they don't worship the Persian gods is given as one of the causes for why ultimately uh, Haman, uh, one of the viziers for the king, is suggests to the king that they need to massacre all of the Jews in Persia. So anyway, it's during this exile, it's during this period of time that we get the story of Esther. And you know, if you grew up in the church, you probably heard the story of Esther as a kid, and you probably heard it you know, pitched as kind of a fairy tale. There's this beautiful young woman who wins the heart of the king and saves the Jews. And the fact is that this is, you know, this is far less a veggie tale story and far more like Game of Thrones. There's, there's murder, there's sex, there's violence, there's hatred. It's, it's an incredibly dark story if you really dig in and, and examine what's going on. And it has fascinating themes like power and vulnerability and identity and compromise. Um, throughout church history, there have been people who hated this book. Uh, Martin Luther actually suggested that it be stricken from the canon. Um, so it's, it's controversial. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's interesting. What's happened so far in chapter 1, to get us to where the scriptures are that we read today, what happened in chapter 1 is this. The king... Uh, uh, the name is translated various ways, Ahuserus or Ahasverosh, or some people use the Greek name for him, which was Xerxes, and, and you might be familiar with Xerxes from ancient Near Eastern history classes in college. Um, Xerxes is throwing this feast, and the, the point of the feast is twofold. One is that he's, he's displaying his wealth to the, the, the elites of Persia. He's bringing them all into the, to the citadel and he's celebrating how wealthy he is and how powerful he is. But what he's really trying to do is whet their appetites with greed because he's basically gonna then tax them so he can go to war. It's a fundraiser. And he wants to go to war against the Greeks. And so he throws this big party and at the party he gets incredibly drunk and he, uh, he sends for his wife Vashti. He's bragging about her beauty, and he sends for her. And for some reason, she doesn't want to come. We don't know exactly what is going on here, but it's implicit that there was some kind of humiliation, some kind of objectification going on with her. And as a result, she doesn't come. So he banishes her from the kingdom for disobeying them. Not only does he banish her, his advisors come around him and say, hey, listen, your wife did this thing. Uh, other wives in the kingdom might get an idea. Get, start getting ideas and thinking for themselves, why don't we pass a law that says if, uh, uh, that men are the masters of their household and women have to obey them? And in a, a real sick way, sometimes Christians get a hold of this story and go, oh, right there, we have a sermon on wives should submit to their husbands. That's not what's going on here. This is about dominance. This is about subservience. So what happens next, and this isn't, again, this isn't in the text. This is sort of the historical backdrop to the text. What happens is Xerxes goes to war against the Greeks, and he loses the war. So he comes back, and he's humiliated by his failure at war. He's humiliated by Vashti uh, refusing to obey him. And it, it puts him in this place in the kingdom where things are kind of unstable. Um, we'll find out in, a little later in the story, there are people plotting to kill him. He kind of knows this. He's trying to figure out, how do I consolidate authority and power again uh, moving forward? 
And what do I do about the fact that I don't have a queen? So his advisors come up with this idea that essentially there's going to be a contest for the queen. They're going to round up all of the young women in Persia, and he's going to be able to sleep with each one of them, and whichever one he likes best, he can then name his queen. And again, sometimes this gets pitched as like, oh, it's a beauty contest. It's, you know, who wants to marry a millionaire? But we really need to see this as, this is kidnapping, this is human trafficking, this is rape, this is dark, dark stuff. And it's a reign of terror. If you can imagine all, basically an entire generation of young women being taken captive by an evil king, forced into slavery essentially for him, that's what's going on here in the story. And there's only four outcomes that any of these women are going to experience. One is that they might sleep with the king and then he might send them back to the harem because they can never leave the harem. Once you've been with the king, you can't ever be with another man. So you're totally cut off from, uh, from, from your family, from society, from everything else. So he might just banish you back to the harem and you'll never hear, see or hear from him again. Um, you, he might make you one of his concubines he might make you one of his many wives, and for one of them, he's going to make them the queen. And of course, that's what happens with Esther in particular. And we should pause here for a moment and just reflect on how dark this is, on how sadistic this is, how sad and tragic it is. Imagine this is you being taken captive. Imagine this is your daughter. And we should ask, what's the proper response to this? What's the proper response for life in exile? How do we make our way through a world that's this dark? And a lot of us are probably sitting there going, man, I'm so glad that I don't live in, in Persia. I'm so glad we are not subject to these things. And, and for certain, there's a brutality taking place in Xerxes' empire that is, that is much different than our own. But underneath the brutality and underneath the darkness, uh, the, the overt violence, there's a couple of big ideas that we still have to live with. Because if you look at Xerxes' party, if you look at the, the, the feast that he's throwing, he's essentially doing what, what men still do today, men in power still do today, which is they brag about their wealth, they brag about their power. The most important thing for a man in Persia is that he's rich and powerful. And Xerxes is asserting that. And look at how women are treated. What's the most important thing about the women in these stories? Well, the most important thing about Vashti is that she was beautiful. The most important thing about Esther is that she was beautiful. She was sexually powerful. So power, money, and sex are lying underneath. The, you know, the, those are the undercurrents of this story. And this is much like our world today. The most important thing about men in our world is oftentimes money and power. And, the most often, the, and women are subject to objectification of all kinds. So it's not that foreign of a world from our own. Um, and again, I think it's, it's worth revisiting the, the pluralism of their world, um, the hostility towards exclusive religion. Uh, again, it's a world much like our own. It's a world where everything is tolerated except for the idea that you might, you know, you might believe that you have a, an exclusive truth claim. Um, once you start asserting that you are exclusively, uh, uh, exclusively have a monopoly on the truth, which Christianity, through the scriptures, asserts that, then you suddenly become a pariah in our society. The duty of believers in exile, whether it's exile in, in our culture or exile literally in, in Babylon and Persia, the duty is to resist. 
The duty is to resist and yet to work for the good of the culture around us. We see that most clearly in Jeremiah chapter 29. What, took place, uh, what takes place there in Jeremiah 29 is this is shortly uh, after the exile. You have competing factions in Israel trying to decide what's supposed to happen next. And in Jeremiah 29, the, the prophet shows up and he essentially rebukes both factions. So on one side of the aisle, you have people who are saying, hey, listen, this whole, uh, whole exile thing, this is going to be really short-lived. God's going to come right back. He's going to rescue us. He's going to send us home. Don't even unpack your bags. On the other side, you have people going, what are you talking about? Yahweh lost the war. We were defeated. Clearly, our God is not as powerful as the God's of Babylon, so we just need to assimilate. We need to, we need to forsake our religion, assimilate. We need to become good Babylonians and move on with our lives. And here's what Jeremiah says. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. I'll pause there for a second because what, what, what he's essentially saying is he's saying, hey, marry one another, intermarry, and build homes and settle down. And the, the, the implicit idea here is stay a tribe, stay connected, build neighborhoods, build families, Expand your families. Multiply. Multiply where you are. But, he says, but seek the welfare of the city to which I've sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So he's simply saying, listen, ignore these competing factions and do this. Stay true to who you are as my people, but work for the good and the flourishing of the city that I've sent you to. And it's, it's a rebuke of these two temptations. It's a rebuke of withdrawal and it's a rebuke of assimilation. And the archetype for this who did this, who did this best is the prophet Daniel. Daniel was taken into exile. He was probably about 15 years old. He was taken into exile, and he became an advisor to the king, and he worked for the good of the empire. He made the empire a better place. But when he was told, you know, eat from the king's table and violate the dietary laws, bow down and pray to these idols, uh, stop praying to your God, stop your own religious practices, Daniel resisted and said no, right up to the point of death. He was willing to die rather than assimilate, willing to die rather than give up what God had called him to. And it's a stark contrast to what we see in Esther and Mordecai. When we meet Mordecai in the, the first verse of your passage uh, in the bulletins, it says, we, we meet a Jew in Susa the citadel named Mordecai. Now, there's three things about that phrase that would have made, uh, that would have made original hearers of this text cringe. The first is that he's in Susa the citadel. So there's the city of Susa, and then there's the citadel, which is kind of the center of power. It's where the palace is, it's where the armies are, it's where all the sort of important political discourse is going to be taking place. And so you have a Jew who has not settled down with the Jewish community. There would have been a Jewish ghetto somewhere in Susa. He's not living amongst the Jews. He's living at the center of power. He's living amongst the Persians. 
The second thing is that we see his name is Mordecai, which is not a Jewish name. It's a Persian name. And it's a Persian name that's named for the god Marduk. So you have a, a Jew not living amongst the Jews who's got a Jewish name, and it's worse than the fact that he just has a Jewish name or a, a Persian name. We see that he was taken into exile when Nebuchadnezzar uh, came and took the exiles out of, out of Israel, which means that he was not born with the name Mordecai. We don't know what his name was, but Mordecai is an adopted name that he took on so that he could blend in and pass for Persian. And as we'll see in the story in the coming weeks, nobody knows that he's Jewish. He's hiding his identity. It's why in the passage today, he's explicitly telling Esther not to tell anyone that she's Jewish. Likewise with Esther, we see just in her introduction, we see problems. We know that her name is Hadassah and her name is Esther. And what's likely is she's an orphan. What's likely is her parents named her Hadassah. They gave her a Jewish name. And then uh, when she came to live with her uncle Mordecai, he changed her name to Esther, which is a Persian name in honor of a, a Persian god, Astrid. So likely Mordecai changed her name. And as we see in the story, we see in the passage today, she's compliant in every way with what they're asking her to do. She is compliant with the eunuchs. She's eating from the king's table. So she's violating the dietary laws. And she willingly participates in this process. And we have to consider the alternatives. What could she have done? What could she have done differently? And this is a complicated issue because on the one hand, she's a young girl, she's in this oppressive society, and she's subject to this reign of terror. And yet we see others in scripture, others throughout scripture, who in moments like this were willing to resist, were willing to flee, were willing to do whatever it took to avoid compromising their identity. But she doesn't, she doesn't flee. She doesn't, re re she doesn't reveal that she's Jewish, and she doesn't resist like Daniel. She does nothing, and she complies, and she finds herself in the situation we find her. So these are the characters as we meet them. Uh, Mordecai, uh, passing for Persian, living at the center of power. Esther, utterly compliant with a pagan empire, compromised and assimilated as Persians. But this is only the beginning of their story. Because what happens, in this, what happens in this book is remarkable. These characters who are utterly compromised become the heroes in the story who step in, risk their very lives to protect the rest of the Jews in the empire. And at the end of the story, Persia is actually a much safer place for the Jews who live there than it was at the beginning. So what, what can we take from this story? What can we take from a story where you have these incredibly compromised people people who have suffered under exile, people who have endured hardship, who then become these heroes, these heroes of the faith. Well, I think there's three things to look at uh, when we examine this story, and I think these, these will carry us through the next few weeks as well. Um, the first off is that nobody is just one thing. Nobody is, is simply one thing. When my Esther book came out, it was interesting because I got a series of critiques and some, and some reviews that, that were really interesting. On one hand, people read the book and they, they said, now listen, it just seems like you go way too easy on Esther. You talk about her as a victim, you talk about how she was trafficked and all of this, but she's utterly compliant. She goes along with this. She's, she's compromised. She's given everything up for the, for the sake of power. 
And then I had people who emailed me who said, uh, I can't believe how hard on Esther you were. You, you call her a victim and you say she was trafficked and you say all of this. And, or you call her a, sorry, you call her a villain and you say that she was, she was compromised. And the fact is that I said both because both are present in the story. Both are happening in the text. So she's a complicated figure and there's more than one thing going on to her sense of identity. What we tend to do, what we're tempted to do, both in stories like this and in life, is to take characters and take people and just flatten them out to a simple label. Because if we can label somebody, we can compartmentalize them, we can understand them, and we can, we can move on from them. Particularly with people towards which we're hostile. You see this in the way Christians and evangelicals get labeled in our culture all the time. If you're an evangelical, I can, I can peg you right away. I can tell you that you're a bigot, you hate gay people, you like to oppress women, and you want to destroy society by imposing your values on it. And yet you hear conservatives say the same thing about progressives. Oh, you're a progressive, I know everything about you. You're a sexual libertine, uh, you want the government to control everything, and you want to destroy society by undermining all of its moral fabric. And so what we tend to do is we tend to caricature people and we slap labels on them that make them easy to control and easy to identify and easy to dismiss. What Esther tells us, what Esther as a book tells us is people are incredibly complicated. Their motives are incredibly complicated. We can't get to the bottom of them. And the fact is that each of us in this room, you are many things. You're at least three things if you're a follower of Jesus. You're a sinner, you're a saint, and you're a sufferer. And those, those realities are important to hold on to because the fact is, as sinners, we, we hurt people, we hurt one another, we rebel against God, we, we live lives that are offensive to him. But in Christ, we're, we're made saints. And as saints, we can do remarkable things. We can love our neighbor as ourself. We can, we can love and, and express the love of God to the world in incredibly powerful ways. And then you're a sufferer. You live in a fallen world. And you're a victim of all of the horrible things that can happen in a fallen world. And the temptation for us at times, for ourselves and for, for others, for looking at others, is to reduce people to just one of those things. So for instance, if, if we're talking about ourselves, if we, if we think we're only a sinner, we, we walk around with feelings of worthlessness. If we think we're only a saint, we're delusional, <laughs> right? And if we think we're only a victim then we embrace the mentality that says, I, I'm passive, the world just has control over me, there's nothing I can do. Esther and Mordecai are these incredibly complex characters where we look at them and we say, are they, are they villains? Are they victims? Are they heroes? And the answer is yes. They're complicated people who God still is able to use for his purposes. The second thing I think is important to notice in, in the beginning of this story here is that you can't get beyond the reach of God's grace. You see this, this level of compromise in their lives, and yet God is able to use them. And I think it's a, a powerful message for those of us who are, who are wrestling regularly with shame and with guilt. In fact, the burden of shame is something that's worth examining in the light of a story like this. Sarah and I, my wife, we were talking about this recently, this difference between guilt and shame, and Sarah's been doing some reading on this, and she, she gave these two great definitions that, that she, had, she had dug up, where when we talk about guilt, we're saying, I've done something wrong, 
But when we're talking about shame, we're saying something's wrong with me. Guilt is I've done something. Shame is about my identity. Brene Brown puts it like this. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame's a powerful theme in the scriptures. Scriptures have a lot to say about shame, starting right the moment sin enters the world. Because sin enters the world and Adam and Eve recognize that they're naked and that they're ashamed. They're saying, there's something wrong with me. But God's answer to being naked and ashamed is to clothe us. Adam and Eve, you know, rushed to find fig leaves to cover themselves up. And the fig leaves were inadequate. And it's a perfect metaphor for all of the things that we try to do to cover up our shame. We, we grab for these inadequate, uh, inadequate resources to cover our shame, whether it's, whether it's pride, whether it's arrogance, whether it's pleasure, whether it's distraction. We do so many things to try to cover up our shame. And God says to Adam and Eve, God shows up and he sacrifices an animal and he clothes them. And it's a foreshadow of the fact that, that the place where we can turn to really deal with our shame is at the cross, where God will sacrifice his own son for our sakes and will clothe us. It's a promise that God made from the beginning. It's a promise we see in the book of Isaiah when he says, Fear not, <clears throat> excuse me, fear not for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will not forget the shame of your youth and the reproach from your widowhood you will remember no more. A few chapters later, Isaiah says, I will greatly reduce, rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This happens for us because of Jesus Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 2, it tells us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured and bore our shame so that he could liberate us from it. And so whatever burden you're carrying in here today, whatever burden you might be carrying of shame, the gospel invites you to set it aside because Jesus bore the shame for you. It might be about your, your foolishness and your immaturity. It might be about secret sins and addictions. It might be about a history of sexual sin. It might be about an affair. It might be about an abortion. All these things that you feel like make you a pariah, all these things that the world at times tells you you're a pariah for, Jesus died for those things to free you from the shame of them. You don't have to carry it around anymore. Whatever it is, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, God looks at you and, as Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation. Writing about that verse, Robert Capon says this, all Jesus did was announce that truth and tell you that it would make you free. It was admittedly a dangerous thing to do because you are a menace. But he did it, therefore. And menace or not, here you stand, uncondemned forever now. What are you going to do with your freedom? When we meet Mordecai and Esther, they are far from saints. They're spiritual failures. They're morally bankrupt. And yet God meets them and makes them into saints and heroes for our faith. You can't imagine what God might do with your life if you entrust it to him 
and allow him to free you from shame and guilt. Third thing, final thing. There is no part of your story that God can't redeem. First off, you think about this story and you think about all the coincidences and the horrible things that take place that lead us to this moment where Esther, in, in a couple of chapters here, where Esther is in the position to step in and preserve the lives of all the Jews in Persia. All these coincidences had to take place, and some of them are really horrible. Esther's parents died when she was a kid, so she happened to be an orphan who came to live with her cousin, who happens to be totally compromised and is able to uh, pass as Persian and able to pass her as Persian. What if, what, if, uh, uh, what if King Xerxes had never gotten drunk? If he hadn't gotten drunk, he wouldn't have banished his wife. And if he hadn't banished his wife, there wouldn't be this opening for the queen, there wouldn't be this you know, nationwide search, and... Esther wouldn't have been queen. She wouldn't have been in that position. And if you look at the book, you can see throughout the book, there is coincidence after coincidence after coincidence after coincidence that leads to this pivotal moment where, where God preserves the Jews. They're critical to how God wants to save them. And then you can consider how much suffering is a part of all of this. Again, Esther's parents die. She's basically kidnapped. She's cut off from the outside world. She's forced to sleep with this king. And yet God uses those circumstances to redeem his people. Ask yourself, could it be that the places of suffering in your life are the very places that God wants to meet you, the very things that God wants to redeem? James 1, verses 2 through 4, you've, you've heard many times, I'm sure. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's something about suffering that produces this steadfastness in us. It roots us in faith. It purifies us. It strengthens us. And I'll be honest, I really struggle to believe that verse. I struggle with it because in the suffering I've experienced in my life and the suffering I've witnessed in my family's lives and the lives of my friends, it's so hard at times to see how is this producing anything good? Where's the good coming in a, in a crisis like this, in, a, in, a, in an illness, in a death? And I think that's almost precisely the point of the book of Esther, all these horrible things, even the sins of Mordecai, Esther, and Xerxes, God uses those circumstances to redeem his people, and he does it in a way where it's really hard to see him. My friend Scotty Smith recently said that God is determined to make sure that none of your suffering is wasted, that all of it belongs, and that one day all of your pain will be healed. It's a promise we see in the book of Revelation. Again, a passage I'm sure you've heard many times. It says, Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. There, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Think about this. Who wipes tears away in your life? Your whole life, who wiped your tears away? It wasn't a disinterested stranger. It wasn't a distant parent. It was a loving parent. It was a loving friend. It was your spouse. It was someone who knows you and cares for you at the most intimate level, who feels a profound empathy for you when they see your pain. That's who God is revealing himself to be. He's someone who will wipe your tears away. And when he does it, 
He will wipe them all away. He will redeem that pain in ways that you can't imagine. Yesterday, myself and, and Brad House, Jamal, Nathan Ivey, a number of us from Sojourn, Dave Owens, we went up to northern Indiana to attend the funeral of Kevin Galloway. Uh, Kevin Jameson mentioned this last week. He was a pastor in Sojourn Network who died suddenly and unexpectedly uh, last Friday, a week ago Friday. And he was like a big brother to many of us. He had this incredible sense of care for pastors. At his funeral yesterday, they were just talking about, he was one of these guys who was just present with you. He showed up, he was present. You never got the sense that he wanted to be somewhere else when you were around Kevin. And there were a lot of tears. You know, I, I wept with his wife, Davina. I wept with my fellow pastors. And there were a lot of people asking why on earth this could have happened. A lot of people asking where God could have been. And as I drove home, I realized that Esther's story speaks to this in a profound way. Because when it's really dark, and when you're really suffering, and it feels like you can't see God at all, we can turn to this strange little book, this strange little story. Did you know that the name of God is never mentioned one time in this book? In fact, there's only one semi-religious reference in the whole book when, when Esther calls for a fast. Otherwise, we never hear the name of God in the book. And the name Esther is actually kind of a, a pun on the Hebrew word for hidden. And so part of the point of this book is that God is hidden. God seems absent. And yet again, coincidence after coincidence after coincidence after coincidence leads us to this place where God redeems Israel and protects them from evil. From this book, we can learn that in our darkest circumstances, our bleakest moments, when God seems most absent, when God seems most silent, the reality is that he's present and he's working and he's redeeming all things. And that we may not see it in our lifetime, he promises, he promises to transform your pain. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That promise, friends, there's, there's this beautiful thing that happens at the end of the book. I mentioned this earlier, but when the book is over, Persia is actually a much safer kingdom for the Jews than it is at the beginning of the story. And it's, it's again, it's a, it's a foreshadow, it's a foretaste of this day where on the other side of redemption, the world is a safe place. The world is a place without pain. The world is a place without tears. That promise points to life in a future heavenly city where the dead in Christ will be raised to new life, where the church will be revealed in all of its glory, and where we will feast together at the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's a promise we celebrate every time we gather at this table. And remember the night that Jesus was betrayed when he took a loaf of bread and broke it, giving thanks. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. We come to this table and we eat this feast and it's, I remember Jeremy Begbie, the theologian one time saying, this is an echo from the future. This is a foretaste of something glorious that's coming. It's a taste of the future. It's a, it's a taste of this day when those tears are gone. 
Friends, I invite you, if your faith is in Jesus, come to this table. Here, we break off a piece of the bread, we dip it in the juice or the wine, and we taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're a believer, come to this table and let's celebrate that together. We're going to sing a song. We actually sang it yesterday at Kevin's funeral as well called We Will Feast in the House of Zion. And we're going to remember and hope for that day. If you're not a believer, then we encourage you, this, this meal isn't for you today, but the gospel is. And if you want that hope for your life, we urge you, come talk to one of us. Talk to somebody around you. Let us have the opportunity to introduce you to Jesus. Let's pray.